Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine, and a very warm welcome to a non-spooky episode of the Film Stories podcast. I see dead people walking around like regular people. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, title gives it away. I'm here to talk of the stories of films and I tend to talk about making of stories, development stories, release stories, marketing stories, stories of insane business decisions that cost major multinational corporations hundreds of millions of dollars, all those kinds of things, really. The films I tend to cover in this podcast, they're more mainstream leaning than anything else. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I'm not here to do snark. I try not to punch down. This podcast is very firmly a celebration of cinema, a recognition that it's really hard to get films made and an appreciation that they do actually somehow manage to come out. Without further ado, I'm going to crack straight on with the first of the two films I'm going to talk about in this episode of Film Stories. We're going back to a 1999 phenomenon. Let me play you a bit of a, tra- a, bit of a clip from the trailer from it. I'll come to the story, the other side of this. Do things for them. I think that they know that you're one of these very rare people who can see them. So you need to help them. What if they don't want to help? I don't think that's the way it works. How do you know for sure? Is anyone there? That then was a clip from 1999's The Sixth Sense, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, starring Bruce Willis, Tony Collette, Olivia Williams and Haley Joel Osmond. And the story, it's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable business story, the story of The Sixth Sense. But we're going to start it by going back to its author, M. Night Shyamalan, a man who was always a movie fan. And this is a story often told about filmmakers, but here was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania making films that were homages to like the work of Steven Spielberg and people like that. He went to New York University for a film school. He returned home not long after that. And when he was 21, he wrote and directed uh, his first film, a film called Praying with Anger, before moving on to a movie called Wide Awake. Now, this would be a turning point film for Shyamalan because it would be a movie that sat on the shelves for years and the experience of making it uh, gave him a determination to make his films more on his own terms. So Wide Awake was picked up by Miramax, then under the stewardship of now convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein. And Weinstein's reputation was for tinkering a lot with films. And he was very much making himself known during the post-production of Wide Awake and changing the film around. And Shyamalan wasn't happy with the direction his movie was now going. Furthermore, the film was just sat on the shelf for years, awaiting release. And the finished version of the movie wouldn't be the one that Shyamalan wanted to put out. And so while all this was going on, I mean, he was building up a career as a Hollywood screenwriter. And so he started working on a new script. He was in his mid-twenties at this time, and he'd had this vision of a child at a wake talking to himself. And so he started putting together a first draft. And this was discussed with the author Brian Raftery in the book Best Movie Year Ever, which I've recommended lots of times. And I do hugely commend you to seek it out. And Shyamalan told Raftery that, that basically that first draft was a rip off of The Silence of the Lambs. 
But he stuck with the concept, even while he was working on films, uh, he was working on the script for Stuart Little, for instance. And over the numerous drafts of The Sixth Sense that he wrote, he, I mean, he was focusing on what was described as a jaded crime scene photographer and his spookily powered son. But that story and the whole idea of some kind of detective mystery wasn't working. That he would say he was forcing the idea rather than following the idea. And as Shyamalan's quoted in the book as saying, he says, if you start listening to the movie rather than your own agenda, good things happen. It starts telling you, I don't want to be this. I want to be that. And The Sixth Sense, as it turned out, wanted to be something a little bit different. So Shyamalan was watching a mix of films just to kind of get like different elements and different ideas. He watched Ordinary People, for instance. He watched Repulsion. I mean, there's a contrasting double bill for you. Um, and over time, he took out the serial killer element that was layered into the script. And he got to the point where this was finished far close to the form that we know the film as today. And so when it came time to then put this script on the market, he took uh, steps to ensure that he'd be taken seriously. So he would buy himself a new pair of shoes. He checked into a nice Los Angeles hotel and he told, he instructed his agents the price for his script. He said the bidding for the script would be a million dollars. That's the starting point. Shyamalan also said that he was going to direct this film no matter what happened. Well, that was going to be a stumbling block given the price tag that was going up for the script. And I, I mean, he had a little bit of Hollywood heat because the, the, he had co-written the script for Stuart Little. He said he wasn't too happy in the end with how that script turned out because as he increased his commitment to The Sixth Sense, he moved away from that and they finished the script without him there and added fart jokes, which he had written in but he got the sixth sense to a point where it was ready to sell so now I'm going to bring another character into the story and so a Hollywood executive by the name of David Vogel now in the 1990s he rose very high up the Walt Disney motion picture chain becoming president of the Walt Disney motion picture group at one point he was he'd been charged with basically finding some low budget successes and he had some he'd had some success with that I mean pictures such as 101 Dalmatians and George of the Jungle and this this was Disney under the era of its then boss, Michael Eisner. Now, Michael Eisner was a frugal man. He didn't believe Disney should be writing enormous checks for things. And Disney was not really one of the studios you'd go for if you had a blockbuster movie to sell at this time. In fact, it would be an executive by the name of Joe Roth who came in. Uh, I'm going to come to him shortly, who would start to turn that a little bit for Disney and would convince Eisner that he needed to write bigger checks and, and get bigger movies. But, I mean, coming into 1996 and 1997, they'd had some hits. I mean, George of the Jungle was just the kind of low-budget success that was, was, you know, gold dust to Disney, really. But its big animated movies weren't delivering in the way that The Lion King in 1994 had. And The Lion King had significantly changed the bar for box office returns for Disney. It grossed nearly a billion, in fact, for everyone, it had grossed nearly a billion dollars at the global box office at a time where that was not a thing at all. But subsequent animated movies, uh, Pocahontas, Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules had come nowhere near that number. They were falling below expectations. Disney had also taken a relatively expensive punt on a prestige project, Martin Scorsese's Cundun, and that would return precious little money to the coffers and lead to significant red ink on the bottom line. And so the structure became that Joe Roth was overseeing the films, David Vogel was reporting into him, and Roth had given Vogel the Hollywood Pictures label that Disney had at that point for its, its grown-up films, inverted commas. It was putting them out through Touchstone Pictures and Hollywood Pictures, and its family-friendly fair was going out under the Walt Disney banner. But it was just two weeks into his position heading up the grown-up so the, the grown-up side, the Hollywood picture side, that Vogel got a call from a man called Jeremy Zimmer. Now, Jeremy Zimmer, this was in September 1997, was an agent representing M. Night Shyamalan. And this is discussed in James B. Stewart's uh, really dense book called Disney War, which again, worth a read, but you need to put aside a bit of time for that one. Um, and Zimmer, 
told Vogel that Knight has written a spec script. We've already sent it to New Line Cinema. If you can clear your lunch schedule, you should read it. You won't be wasting your time. So spec scripts are as they sound. They're screenplays written without studio commissioning in the first place. You, you write them in the hope that someone will buy them. And if you get the right one, huge bidding war ensues. And writers were getting quite savvy to this in the 1990s. Certainly their agents were, and they would set deadlines that you had to have your bid in by such a point. That's how films such as Basic Instinct, the script for that, ended up at $3 million sale. Um, and so Vogel set aside his lunch hour and duly read this screenplay. And he'd been familiar with M. Night Shyamalan beforehand. He'd met him um, after Harvey Weinstein had mangled the editing of Wide Awake. Um, and by 1.30 on that day, when he took delivery of the script, Vogel had called Zimmer back and said he wanted the film. But there was a problem here, because whilst Vogel had ascended to a position where he was overseeing one of Disney's labels, he hadn't at any point during his Disney career directly greenlit a film himself. Uh, was he able to? Well, we're about to find out, because the bidding war for The Sixth Sense was already underway. New Line had put in a $2 million bid for the spec script, and there was no way under the Michael Eisner regime of Disney that it was going to get into that kind of contest. It was not going to outbid New Line. And so Vogel had to come up with a slightly different proposition. And so instead, he offered a guarantee as part of his bid that if M. Night Shyamalan could bring the film in for $14 million or less, the studio wouldn't kill the film, it would release the film, and Shyamalan would have the guaranteed right to direct the movie. And Zimmer said yes, because the, Shyamalan had written it in from the start, he was going to direct this. The deal was done. Vogel had greenlit the picture, Joe Roth wasn't around, so he could cross-check his decision with him. And so he unilaterally had to decide, we're going for this film. Uh, a little bit of a spoiler. It's the decision that ultimately would start a catalyst that would cost him his job. Uh, incredibly, as we're about to find out. So the news of what Vogel had done hadn't gone down well in Disney at all. But still, could they bring in this film for $14 million? It's an offbeat, ghostly drama, really. I mean, I see dead people. It's up there in the trailer. Um, could they get it done with someone like Kevin Spacey in the lead for a million dollars? That would have fit uh, fitted the Disney model at the time. Um, producers Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall were contracted to Disney um, also at this period and were, had a relationship with the studio and came on board to produce the movie. Um, and then Joe Roth came back. So he came back, he read the script on his return, he quite liked it, but he wasn't demonstrating any signs of loving it, and he certainly didn't seem to be happy at all with what Vogel had done. In fact, the feeling was that Michael Eisner, when he found out about this, was going to hit the roof. Not only had Vogel bought a script for seven figures, he'd guaranteed a director on it, and it just wasn't the Disney done thing. And so by the summer of 1998, the internal setup of Disney was changing again and the plates were shifting once more. Hollywood Studios, Touchstone Pictures and Disney Studios were now coming under one label and David Vogel was said to be heading all of those up. But this was also when things went a bit nuclear for the movie. Because, let's introduce Bruce Willis, because in a third part of this story, there was a movie called Broadway Brawler that Willis had committed to make for Disney. It was a fairly low budget by the standards of uh, of Bruce Willis vehicles at this point. Uh, he was in the midst of his career resurrection. Uh, 1994's Pulp Fiction had put him firmly back on the map. And then the third Die Hard film had come out in 1995 and proven he still had the box office chops as well. And so Disney signing him up for Broadway Brawler sounded like a good idea. So filming got underway on that, but 20 days into the shoot, uh, Willis called Halt. And there were considerable disagreements on the set of that movie. And there was a feeling it wasn't going to work. And Willis, down tooling basically on it, started a process that led to the abandonment of the film Broadway Brawler, which has never seen the light of day, nor has that 20 days of footage. Disney, in turn, well, it had already spent $15 million on this film. And whilst it didn't want to offend one of Hollywood's biggest stars at the time, it started considering action against Bruce Willis to retrieve some of that money that it had already spent. Now, this is where Joe Roth had a clever brainwave, because rather than taking Willis to court, never a good look, as Disney's found out uh, more recently when the case with Scarlett Johansson and profits from the Black Widow movie, um, Roth approached Willis with a deal. 
if he would commit to starring in three films for the studio and then the legal action would be dropped and the money that had been spent on Willis so far for Broadway Brawler would be attributed to those projects. And so Willis agreed and Roth was thinking we can get him in big action films because even though Disney was frugal at this point, it had success with The Rock and Con Air. That was that era. And it had a big Michael Bay movie. It got Michael Bay back after The Rock for Armageddon and Bruce Willis. Well, perfect. Exactly the kind of person they needed at the heart of that. And that would in turn be the first of the three films that Willis would commit to as part of his deal. The one uh, that I won't talk about really in this podcast is The Kid, which he would make uh, at the end of that three film deal. That was a box office success as well. But for the purposes of this, um, Willis had agreed to start in Armageddon, which was Disney's most expensive film to that point. But also... Um, he was seeing every leading man script that Disney had. And so Vogel sent the Sixth Sense screenplay to Bruce Willis's agent, a man called Arnold Rifkin. Now, nothing out of the ordinary there, but the shock for Disney, hoping that Willis would lead two or three big action films, was that this was the script that Willis read and this was the script that Willis chose. And this was a 14, in, in its eyes, a 14 million dollar small movie that was going to be a nightmare to sell. And if it could at best bring in 20, 30 million dollars of that back, fine, they'd have got away with it. So Rifkin rang Vogel up and said, yep, yeah, Bruce Willis will do it, but not with M, M. Night Shyamalan as director. Vogel said, uh, re reported back to Willis's agent, he'd made a commitment. Shyamalan had to direct. And they sat there just expecting Bruce Willis to walk from the project. But he didn't. Now, it meant a delay in filming due to other commitments that the star had. But all of a sudden, this one of the smallest projects, one of the smallest active projects on Disney slate at that point, had a huge movie star attached and a huge movie star in a non-huge movie star role. And so the film was now definitely going to happen and the budget was going to balloon as well. This was now going to cost 30, 40 million dollars to make with a, it, it, not a first time director, but certainly a novice director in the eyes of Disney. And well, people still weren't happy behind the scenes. For Shyamalan, though, who as part of his deal would agree to do some rewrite work on the film She's All That as well, which was uncredited, uh, he could now go ahead and plan his movie. And so there was the small matter of Casty, and in particular the pivotal role of the young boy in the film, Cole. Now, the search to play the right actor to play Cole took months and months and months. And Shyamalan would admit they, they auditioned tons and tons of kids for the part. Uh, but with Haley Joel Osment, who ultimately would prevail and land the role and uh, it, I, <laughs> giving a pretty iconic performance for a young performer as well. I mean, he was 10 years old at this point and he knew the screenplay and he had a foot into the industry already that he'd been acting since he was four years old. Um, he turned up in a Pizza Hut advert as well. He had a small role in the film Forrest Gump. Uh, he plays Forrest's son in that movie. And so ahead of uh, his audition for The Sixth Sense, uh, Osman would rehearse a lot with his father and his father was a stage actor. So they sat and discussed all the themes and he came in, uh, did his audition. And as described in Brian Raftery's book, uh, the audition would leave both Shyamalan and Osman in tears. And Shyamalan knew on the spot that he wanted Haley Joel Osman for the role. He knew he had his actor. Now, the last uh, major role in the film to be cast was that of Anna, uh, Cole's mum in the film. And people were turning that down. I mean, Marissa Tomai was uh, was thinking about it. I, the story was she was offered it, but ultimately veered away. Claire Fellani was, uh, was a growing reputation in Hollywood at the time. She was landing uh, quite a lot of big blockbuster movies or certainly big studio movies. But she was said to have turned it down. And it was Olivia Williams who just wrapped filming on Wes Anderson's movie Rushmore, who came in and took a meeting. Now, in true Hollywood style, she was told that she would have to lose weight if she wanted to take the role on. She pointed out that in the film, she's playing a grieving woman and grieving uh, people in grief uh, are more likely to put weight on than take weight off. But that was just having no shrift with Disney whatsoever. And to the studio's reluctance, really, the film would head towards production. This was a, a, a go project, if you like, with filming beginning in September of 1998. 
Now, there was a bit of a tabloid furore around at the time because this was just around the point that Bruce Willis announced he split from his then wife of more than 10 years, Demi Moore. And they're a huge, it was a huge story in the press at the time. And Olivia Williams had just been through something, a split of sorts as well. And she would describe how the pair of them bonded about shattered relationships. But it's worth noting that there's quite a lot of stories of Bruce Willis, um, let's just say, having his say on the set of movies. If you go to Hudson Hawk, for instance, he was said to have, I mean, almost pseudo directed that at one point, certainly uh, having his say where director Michael Lehman was concerned on that one. If you read Julie Salomon's book, The Devil's Candy, about the make him 1990s, The Bonfire of the Vanities, he's more than having his say there. Kevin Smith has talked about Willis's input on the film Cop Out as well. And the point of all of this is there is a reputation, and others have talked otherwise about this, Ryan Johnson on Looper, very complimentary about Willis, um, that Bruce Willis was a difficult actor to work with. And here was, again, a relatively inexperienced director. And so they had a moment early in the filming of it where they, they were shooting one one particular small small scene in the film and Shyamalan asked Willis to just change one of his line readings a little bit and Willis turned to him and said no no I think we've got it but Shyamalan pushed back he said like no this is it this is the moment here's what I was thinking and Willis looked at him and before he had a chance to tell me what he thought said Shyamalan I go roll sound here we go and he got the sequence. He pushed back quietly against Willis and, and just through speed and efficiency, he got what he wanted. Thinking that the day was complete, Shyamalan that day was walking back to his car and then he got the word that Willis wanted to see him in his trailer uh, on the set. And so naturally you just start to get the shakes there. I mean, this is the moment. The, the, the director is going to get booted off his film or Willis is going to put him in his place. Um, but in this case, he just needn't have worried because, as Willis would say to Shyamalan that day, um, he felt the film was going to be good. And he said he'd only felt this one time on a film with Quentin Tarantino on Pulp Fiction. Um, it was quite the moment for Shyamalan. And he, he describes it as, as such when talking to Brian Raftery in the best movie year ever book. Um, it's worth noting uh, that Shyamalan 2 was, I mean, he knew what he wanted in his shots. Uh, he was particularly controlling of one certain colour in the colour palette of his shots as well. That considering they were filming a lot on location in and around Philadelphia, keeping a certain colour out of the frame, uh, apart from when he wanted it, was, was very, very difficult. But he managed to do it. Now, while the shooting of the film was thus going ahead far more calmly than some might have anticipated, three quarters of the way through filming, David Vogel took a phone call. The phone call was from a man called Roger Birnbaum. Now, Birnbaum was heading up an independent production company at that point called Spyglass. And this was Disney's lack of confidence in the sixth sense writ large. Because without telling Vogel, without telling uh, producers Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall too, um, Disney sold the foreign and the domestic distribution rights to The Sixth Sense to another company. Now, it wasn't uncommon for a studio to sell foreign, non-US rights, but to sell all of the distribution rights to a film just said one thing. A movie is being dumped. They have absolutely no confidence in it. Disney would retain only a distribution fee for the movie of 12.5%. But Vogel on this film now had a new boss. It was now a spyglass picture. Roger Birnbaum was informed Vogel that any budget overruns or what anything now had to be run by him. Vogel wasn't happy. Kennedy wasn't happy. Marshall wasn't happy. And it would be fair to say Joe Roth and Vogel's relationship deteriorated a lot further as well. In spite of the project being sold from under their feet uh, during filming, it wrapped up on the 13th of November 1998. But the internal Disney politics were continuing because Joe Roth would shuffle the pack at Disney again and ultimately would bring in a man called Peter Schneider over David Vogel. And Vogel thus had a new boss and another step in the organisation chart above him. And um, he read the runes. He was being demoted. 
if there was any doubt about that when Schneider had a meeting with Vogel and told him he'd have to run all decisions by him. Well, Vogel <laughs> knew he wouldn't have the authority to buy him projects anymore, notwithstanding the fact that under his watch, Disney had Inspector Gadget, not a great film, but would turn out to be quite a hit, and The Sixth Sense just readying for release in 1999. But Vogel knew the writing was on the wall here and he knew he would need to get out. Now, let's go back to the film itself, because in the spring of 1999, and, and what a movie year that was, the first test screening took place for The Sixth Sense. So 1999, that spring and summer, this was the year of Star Wars Return with Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. This was Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me, going absolutely nuclear. Warner's had huge hopes for Wild Wild West. That was its big hope. But also a film called The Matrix, you heard of that, had sprung up in the spring of 1999 and was already dominating the box office. And in fact, the first test screening for The Sixth Sense took place at a cinema that was plastered with, uh, with, with just the artwork of The Matrix, which was selling bunches of tickets. So Shyamalan moved into the middle of the room for his test screening and he recounted the story of sitting to a young man who was sitting near him and basically lobbing comments at the screen. And Shyamalan just like was just uh, he, he getting angrier and angrier and angrier as this man just kept throwing wisecracks and jokes and, and just like, pulling the leg of the movie in front of him. But then he noticed that the gap between all these Saki comments was getting longer. First 10 minutes, then 20 minutes, and then silence. The guy was wrapped, absolutely paying attention to the film. And Shyamalan sought out his feedback card that the test audience member had left behind, and he'd rated the movie as excellent. And as Shyamalan said, I mean, I'd literally wanted to choke this dude for the entire movie, but the movie had won him over. Now, the test screening went well, but the in fact, the test screenings for the film were going really well, save for some debate over the film's ending and whether the film's ending worked. And so Shyamalan was listening to the conversations. I mean, no one knew him from Adam in the screening, so he could eavesdrop in. And he realised he just needed to add a little bit of material to the final moments of the film just to clarify it, that it was a little bit more vague than you get in the final cut. But he edited those in and he had a final cut of the film coming together. But what he didn't have was a studio that was particularly confident in it because Disney was still distributing, but no, it was only taking its distribution fee. So there wasn't much point to it throwing enormous heft behind it. And the feeling was, even with Bruce Willis in the lead, this was like a $40 million return at the US box office. That would be great. Um, it was... It was a tricky sell for the studio and it didn't quite know how to sell it anyway. I mean, it was a PG-13 dark drama uh, with a boy who sees dead people. Was this a horror film? Was this a, a drama? Was it a movie star? I mean, where do you put it? And in fact, it slotted the film in for release in August of 1999. Now, August now is a, a commonplace, a, a place you can put any blockbuster and it stands a chance of doing great guns at the box office. But... A, a big film dumped into August in 1999, your film was being dumped. It was, again, a further lack of confidence in the movie. And even though it was now going to come out in and around Shyamalan's 29th birthday, 29, imagine, um, the, the, it's, Disney's lack of confidence was very, very much writ large. I mean, it didn't know how to market it. It brought in critics and was asking the critics, is this film any good? Do we have anything here? Is this working? And it left the critics believing that the film was at best going to get a low key release because also, I mean, if there was any hope for The Sixth Sense to break out, it would be a word of mouth sensation. But that summer already had one because, and, and you know, thematically with a little tinge of, of horror and ghostly stuff about it, the Blair Witch Project was generating an enormous amount of buzz and by this point an enormous amount of box office as well. And it had become the word of mouth sensation of the summer of 1999, a summer that already had an enormous number of box office hits. And Surely, eventually, the audience would be tired of films and not want to go and see absolutely everything, everything out there. And so it was against this, with Shyamalan's worries just increasing, that The Sixth Sense went before critics. And the critical response to it 
was very good. I'd say very good more than great, but the people who really went for it really went for it. And in particular, Haley Joel Osment's performance was widely lauded, as was Bruce Willis's. And it's a really, really good performance from Bruce Willis in this. And the, the general feeling was that Disney had a good film on its hands. I would suggest nobody saw what was about to happen coming. Because the film opened in the US on August the 6th, so the weekend of August the 6th to the 8th. And Shyamalan had, was, was monitoring the box office. He'd been given a line in so he could find out just how it was doing. And again, the hope was $40 million for its total run. That would be enough that Shyamalan could get away with it and make another film. He took a phone call from Bruce Willis that weekend uh, and it was Willis who informed him the film was going to open at number one. Now, the previous week's number one had been Runaway Bride, Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. That had, that had opened up and that was a big ticket rom-com and it had helped itself to tens of millions of dollars. There were three films opening against The Sixth Sense. There was The Thomas Crown Affair, which I'm coming to in a future episode with uh, Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. Mystery Men, again, that's one for a future episode. That was opening up. And <laughs> my, the beloved The Iron Giant. There was a low-key release as well for a film called Dick, which is really, really, really good. A Richard Nixon uh, leaning comedy. But The Sixth Sense had opened with $26.6 million opening weekend. That was really, really good box office. However, The Sixth Sense was far from done because notwithstanding the fact that the Blair Witch Project had already uh, earned a lot of uh, word of mouth attention, the, the week after week after week, The Sixth Sense just continued to bring in the money. So the weekend after, it stayed in top spot and just... I've talked before on this podcast about how a second weekend of a movie, if it loses about 30% of its business, that's good. 60% is generally the norm. The Sixth Sense lost 3%, 3.4%, uh, held off the release of the brilliant Bowfinger uh, to stay number one in its second week. Its third week, it only lost 7%. And it stayed number one for another week, losing 16%. This was unheard of. Week five, it was still topping the chart. It was still seeing off the competition. And Disney positioning it in this graveyard slot had, in essence, cleared the competition out. And here was this sensation of a movie. It was a film, Stigmata, that took it off the top spot only just. But it would have to wait over a month before it was displaced from the top of the chart. In the end, The Sixth Sense, as well as earning Oscar nominations, would gross $293 million alone in the US, $379 million outside the US for a total worldwide gross off that $40 million budget of $672.8 million. It was the biggest hit of Bruce Willis's career at that stage, one of his riskiest projects. The film would go on to be uh, the best-selling DVD of the year in the UK, one of the best-selling DVDs of all time at that point as well. And for M. Night Shyamalan, it would cement a working relationship uh, that would uh, move him on to on Breakable. He'd worked with Bruce Willis uh, as well uh, several times. Um, and then for Disney, it would sit there with its 12.5% distribution fee, having sold this project off that had made nearly $700 million off a $40 million budget. Vogel had long gone from Disney at this point, never even got a phone call about it. But The Sixth Sense nonetheless broke through all of the hurdles that it had to do to not only become a massive box office hit, to not only become an awards, uh, an awards contender as well, but really a bit of a cultural phenomenon in doing so. All I have to say to people is I see dead people. They know where it comes from. And how many other films can you say that about from 1999? Well, quite a few, but The Sixth Sense was a good one. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Which brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Stories. I've been waffling on quite a lot, so I'm going to do my parish notices and I'll do them really quickly before I get to the second film. So uh, Film Stories is collaborating on a new podcast that's launching any minute, the Film Quiz podcast, uh, which is hosted by our friend Nick Helm. And it is a movie trivia podcast we've brought in comedians to to take uh, the film quizzes for us. Um, that's going to be available uh, very, very, very shortly. If you watch the Film Stories Twitter account at Film Stories Pod or the Film Stories website at filmstories.co.uk. You'll find out all about that. If you want to support this podcast and if you'd like to support this podcast, I mean, A, thank you, and B, there are three ways you can do so. Um, I'm at Patreon, patreon.com slash Simon Brew, and that's where you find all the news of what's coming up on Film Stories. We've got some big special episodes and events coming as well. Um, if you can subscribe to this podcast, that makes uh, uh, that really helps independent podcasts like this and it's hugely appreciated. And likewise, it can leave ideally a hugely positive review. That would be amazing. I'm also recording a live in conversation with my first live Film Stories podcast recording uh, with Gorinda Chadder. In this case, we're going to be exploring her career from films such as Bend It Like Beckham, uh, Bargy on the Beach, Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging, right up to Blinded by the Light. That's at the London Podcast Festival on the 15th of September 2022. Depending when you're listening to it, this will either be useful or not. Full details of how to get tickets are will be appearing at filmstories.co.uk. Else search for the London Podcast Festival and you can get tickets directly through their website as well. And then a new issue of Film Stories, our print magazine, is just coming out. Uh, it's headlined by the really good, fun British whodunit comedy, See How They Run. Uh, so it gives Knives Out very much a run for its money. I'm really, really chuffed we've been able to get the inside story on the movie for the new issue. You can find that at store.filmstories.co.uk. But without further ado, I'm going to get on with the second of the two films I'm going to talk about in this episode of Film Stories. A less successful movie, I think we can safely say, a far more expensive one, but another one with a movie star at its heart. Let me play you a bit from the trailer and I'll come to the story the other side of this. Some alien life force has sent real-life video games to attack us. Pac-Man's a bad guy? Incoming! Donkey Kong. Just a barrel! How bad can it hurt? The only way to take down Pac-Man is with ghosts. You want ghosts? These are your ghosts. Oh, yeah! We're the only ones who can do this! I'm kidding. We are all gonna die. That then was a clip from 2015's Pixels, directed by Chris Columbus, with a screenplay by Tim Hurley and Timothy Dowling, story by Tim Hurley and based on the film Pixels by Patrick Jean. Uh, the film stars Adam Sandler, Kevin James, Michelle Monaghan, Peter Dinklage, Josh Gad and Brian Cox. And, well, it came at a point where Adam Sandler's career was in some degree of flux. Because by the early 2010s, Sandler and Sony Pictures' long-term relationship was, it's fair to say, reaching its end point. It had been one of the most successful Hollywood partnerships in recent times. And for a long time, it was seen by Hollywood studios as a gold standard deal. It was the sweet spot. Adam Sandler's films didn't cost an awful lot of money to make. They made a lot of money at the box office. And, well, no two ways about it. Hit after hit was arriving. Films like Big Daddy, You Don't Mess With The Zohan, I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, Click. I mean, there was the odd misfire... But for the most part, you could put money on an Adam Sandler film. You could release it in the summer. People would turn up. Everyone could go home and count the cash. But just the things started to turn. And as much as like Grown Ups and its sequel would turn into big hits, the critical backlash against Sandler's movies was ongoing. And then if there was a turning point, really, it was the start of the 2010s when the film Jack and Jill came along. And it wasn't just the critical backlash that time. It was the time the audience notably dropped. No matter, 
audience has dropped before. Sandra always brought them back. But his next film, That's My Boy, well, its box office performance was even further down. And there was a feeling that the Adam Sandler bubble had burst, certainly within Sony Pictures. And Sony had been able to bank for a long time on money from DVD sales to offset films that weren't doing particularly well. By 2011, 2012, that was just no longer the case. However, Sandler still had a single movie left on his Sony contract, and so he put his energies at first towards an adaptation of the board game, popular in America, less so in the UK, and that was Candyland. Now, this got a little bit of a way down the track because Hollywood was looking to board games at the time in Battleship movie. I'm sure we'll come to that at some point in the future. But for the purposes of this, Robert Smeagol joined Adam Sandler in writing the screenplay and Kevin Lima was brought in with a view to directing. Kevin Lima directed Enchanted, huge hit for Disney. I love that film as well. But the problem with Candyland is this was going to be a really expensive film to make. And the bill was said to be topping $200 million just to get the movie made, even before you get to release. Now, that's not cheap by anyone's money. It's certainly more pocket money than I had as a kid. And it didn't help that Sony was losing faith with Sandler at this time. Was he worth a $200 million gamble? Was he the kind of movie star that could guarantee an opening weekend that could give a return on that? And I mean, so if there was any more umming and ahhing to do, Sony's mind was made up in 2014 when the company Landmark Entertainment Group filed a claim against Sony that it said it didn't have the right to license elements for the film. It couldn't make the movie unless this court case had cleared. So Landmark had developed features of the games itself. It created artwork, stories, characters within it. And so Hasbro was the company that licensed the, that gave Sony the original permission to make the film. But now Landmark was going for Hasbro. Hasbro refuted the suit, but it just added a complication. At that point in time, Sony was wobbling on the project anyway. And it got to a point where an uncomfortable comfortable conversation had to take place that the then boss of Sony Pictures Amy Pascal had the job of telling Adam Sandler who'd been the golden goose for the studio really for 10-15 years that Sony was bailing out of Candyland it wasn't going to make the film it was too big a risk and there was just no certainty of a return now, Pascal had also turned down another film that Sandler wanted to make as part of his Sony deal, the comedy The Ridiculous Six. And he took that. He did, he's, at this point, his deal wasn't exclusive to Sony. And so he got that set up at Paramount Pictures for a while in 2012 before in came Netflix. And I mean, this is modern film history, as I suspect you know the story. Netflix came in, signed Adam Sandler to a gigantically expensive four picture deal at a point where studios were umming and ahhing about making his films and the amount that he was alleged to be receiving for these films was was like comfortably in the eight figures per movie the ridiculous six netflix will make that no problem whatsoever and so sandler set set his happy madison production company in the direction of netflix and making films for the streaming giant at a point when netflix was not signing up movie stars it was such a coup even if the rest of hollywood looked and basically with a view of well you can have him which given some of the films sandler's made since i mean uncut gems for instance you know may have been something of a misstep however even as he migrated to netflix he still owed sony a live action movie it's worth just as an aside there noting that sandler continued making hotel Trans. Pennsylvania animated films with Sony for some time but by this time as they looked for that film the movie Pixels had been on the stove for some time now the origins of Pixels um, was a short film that landed online in 2010 by a filmmaker called Patrick Sheen and it was a simple short film that featured classic video game characters of the 1980s attacking New York City and so it came to the attention of many Hollywood studios at that point but not least Sandler's Happy Madison production company and so in 2010 Patrick Sheen was approached would he was he interested in them turning pixels into a feature because what Happy Madison had seen was well here's a chance to do something a bit Ghostbusters-y, an external threat to New York City with nostalgia writ large right throughout it. And Gene agreed to this. A deal was done. And so in 2010, Sandler put one of his regular writers, Tim Hurley, who'd penned The Wedding Singer, for instance, onto the project. Sandler was working on other films, but this one was now formally in development and a script got underway. 
It was in 2012 that Tim Dowling, who, who'd worked on Just Go uh, Just Go With It for Sandler as well, came on to do some co-writing on it. And eventually, Pixels got to a point where it bubbled to the top of Sony and Sandler's pile. It was going to be cheaper to make than Candyland. It's still going to be expensive. But there was a feeling this could be a big, broad family comedy. The, the, the you know, the holy grail for Hollywood, the four quadrant movie that appeals, a, a shorthand way of saying, appeals to absolutely everybody. And so it got to a point by 2012 that the hunt was on for a director. And that's when Chris Columbus came into Adam Sandler's production company's office. Now, Chris Columbus, his biggest hit remains Lights of Home Alone and Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, and of course, the first two Harry Potter movies, they were quite small and relatively successful, weren't they? But at this stage, he hadn't directed a film since 2010's Percy Jackson and the Olympians, colon, The Lightning Thief. And so he went in to see Happy Madison just as Sandler was on the verge of releasing Grown Ups 2 and was working with Warner Brothers on the comedy Blended that would reunite him with Drew Barrymore to talk about a different film. And so the conversation got going. And as the story goes, Columbus on his way out was handed the script to Pixels to sound out his interest. And so as Columbus would say in the end, what he saw in it was it's Gremlins meets Goonies meets Harry Potter. And he argued it gave me the opportunity to create something really fresh using the tools I'd gathered over the years. It would, in his words, be an original summer movie that took you back to the 80s in an evocative, nostalgic way. Now, the sticking point for the film, much as it was with Disney's Wreck-It Ralph animated movie, was getting rights to use classic video game characters. But I think Disney had done a bit of the pathfinding here. And so the script for Pixels that they were looking to use was going to bring in characters such as Pac-Man, Frogger, Centipede. It's going to use elements of games like Defender, Missile Command, Paperboy, the character of Cubert. And these were the, the these were really the properties that they needed to be able to bring into the film. And so approaches were made, as producer Michael Barnathan would explain, to the rights holders for those. For games publishers such as Warner Brothers Interactive, Sony, helpfully, you'd imagine Sony gave them a quick yes, Konami, Atari. And this was a process of years to be able to get the rights to all of these characters. This is one of the things that had slowed Pixels through its development process. And as Barnathan would explain, it started about four years ago. The companies were very protective of their properties, which they should be. But he said it was still an ongoing discussion up until two months before we started shooting. And they did get the sign off and they did get the rights. And the games publishers managed to pocket a bit of coin for their trouble. But now there was a growing confidence that this could be really quite something. In fact, Columbus, Chris Columbus was quoted as saying he felt this was a four quadrant movie. This, this is where he liked to position his films, a big, broad family audience. He said, I think there's a lot of nostalgia for these games and about the 80s in particular. He said, I certainly hear it all the time. I talk to college kids and their favourite movie is The Goonies, which Columbus happened to write. And he said, there's a lot of love for that era right now. And contextually, he was correct. I mean, nostalgia was, uh, was high on the agenda at that point, as it is at the point this podcast is being recorded. And so Sony and Sandler agreed this was the project that was going to move forward. They did some toing or throwing, toing and throwing on the budget on it and tried a few little tricks to bring it down. But they were looking at a production budget of about 110, 120 million dollars. So Sony was clearly going to have to position this as a big winter or summer blockbuster movie. But it looked like a good risk to take. And so by February 2014, the casting could really start to come together. I mean, we knew Adam Sandler was going to star. We knew Pac-Man was in it. But Josh Gad and Kevin James, they came on board in February 2014. A month later, Peter Dinklage, he signed on the dotted line. Um, Jennifer Aniston for a while, who, and she'd enjoyed a hit with Sandler in the, with the film Just Go With It, was briefly in line to take the lead female role. Uh, the problem here was her schedule was just packed up. And so instead, Michelle Monaghan signed on the dotted line relatively late in the day, uh, a few weeks before production. The budget was pretty much in place. And as Columbus would explain of his casting in an interview with Variety, he wanted to use Adam Sandler in this film as an actor. And he'd done some dramatic stuff at this point. I mean, Punch Drunk Love, hugely acclaimed. Um, but and. Columbus argued people like Josh Gad, Peter Dinklage, Michelle Monaghan, I thought he wanted to surround Sandler with actors like that. And then he said, well, let's not cast 
Kevin James in an expected role. Let's cast him as as a different version of the president in this. And he said, that's where I had fun with it. It was always about the comedy emitting from the characters. And so with, again, with some degree of confidence, the production went to Canada for this one with Toronto doubling for New York and filming could get underway at the end of May 2014. Sony was confident to the point that it gave the film at this stage a May 2015 start of summer blockbuster season release date. And in fact, the film had been going to a point where shooting could move forward just a little bit. It did start production, I gather, on this one, just, just a week or two ahead of when it had been planned. There was still room for a little bit of casting just after filming began. Jane Krakowski was announced just after filming started. Um, but the live action element of it, well, that was underway. Off they went to Canada. Now, on the visual effects side, that Columbus was absolutely insistent. He wanted to put on screen something that people hadn't seen before. These classic video game characters interacting with recognisable landmarks and cities. And so it was production designer Peter Wenham who came in. He had to come up with the look of the film and trying to basically take 8-bit pixelated video game characters and bringing them into 3D. And not just 3D, but 3D antagonists for the sake of a feature film um, as Peter Wenham would explain it was important to the different gaming companies and to us as well to stay as truthful as we possibly could even as we made those characters 3D and then once that work had been done Matthew Butler had been hired as visual effects supervisor and he was the person who had to bring them into the world of the film to make sure as Columbus explained that these creatures not only feel like they exist in our world but again this point that the audience is seeing something they've never seen before. Now, for the big, for the film's big finale, um, a huge set was then built at Pinewood's Toronto facility. I'm going mildly spoilery here um, in that they built a real life recreation of the game, the classic video game Donkey Kong, one that stood 70 feet tall. And this was a massive set that was also being interspersed with around 130 visual effects shots. As Michelle Monaghan would explain at the premiere of the movie, it was very challenging to film that screen. She said they built a huge green screen set where Donkey Kong was just a big X in the corner of the stage. We had to wear harnesses attached to pulleys and run and jump off platforms and get pushed and pulled in every direction. Chris Columbus would then shout direction to us. Uh, it's a jump. There wasn't a barrel because the barrel was going to be put in in post-production, uh, but they were jumping anyway. And as she said, you feel a bit silly, but it works in the end. Now, that's not to say there weren't lots of physical elements, not least that 70 foot set, because they brought in lots of uh, genuine arcade machine and arcade machine cabinets from across North America and individually refurbished all of the ones that you see in the film. Once the refurbishment was done, then those cabinets then each had to be individually checked off with the company who had made the game in the first place, even if they didn't own the cabinets themselves. So it was quite a lengthy process. And as much as the official press notes go on about how much fun they were having it just sounds like an administrative nightmare to me still by september 2014 again sony was thinking it's got something it had showcased part of the film at san diego comic-con for instance and it had gone down well it got to the point uh, as production wrapped up that autumn that it had moved Pixel's release date to high summer, July the 24th, 2015. Slap bang in, in summer season, nowhere to hide. Still, in the into post-production went the movie. It had a lengthy post-production given the, the amount of computer graphics that needed to put on the screen for it. And there was a slight problem potentially at one stage when at the end of 2014, hackers uh, broke into Sony servers in what became known as the Sony hack or Sony cyber terrorist attack, really. Um, and they hacked into Sony servers. They uh, took thousands upon thousands of documents and emails. And uh, in the case of the Annie remake that Christmas, they took the completed film and leaked it online as well. And this laid bare behind the scenes communications about the movie as well. And a lot of behind the scenes communications going on within Sony itself. I'm not massively comfortable talking about exact things revealed in that by the nature of the way it was hacked into and attacked. But it was a, a public relations nightmare for Sony. For Chris Columbus, there was a fear that Pixels was one of the films on its servers, but they hadn't finished the film at that stage. If they'd have finished it a little bit earlier and it had been uploaded to the servers the hackers were able to get access to, then it's entirely feasible that Pixels would have been released months and months ahead in an incomplete state. 
Um, still, Sony pressed ahead, even whilst the corporate politics around it was problematic, around the company itself was just causing all sorts of problems. And in March 2015, it released the first trailer for, Pix uh, for Pixels. It was a sensation. It was viewed almost as many times in 24 hours as the, the latest trailer for Avengers Age of Ultron that was released around the same time. There about 34 million people watched this trailer within 24 hours. And it led to that growing belief that Sony had something here, that it had the right film at the right time. It didn't hurt either that the, when the news spilled out on the eve of the film's release that the movie had been changed to try and appeal to Chinese censors to try and get the movie movie released in China. Now this was as DVD money decreased in Hollywood that chasing a Chinese release was the, the next big money grab and we saw how films such as Iron Man 3 and you know one or two of the Transformers movies were deliberately either changed or targeted towards China in order to guarantee that they get through the stringent release processes in that country and get access to one of the biggest film markets on earth if not the biggest film market on earth. Uh, Sony wanted pixels out in China and so a sequence involving the Great Wall of China for instance was lopped out and little bits of dialogue were altered. The studio then continued to spend big on the movie and the promotions continued to wrap up and wrap up and wrap up and so it just came to release time. It was time to put this film in front of critics and I mean with fairly predictable results really that the response to the film was not particularly strong. I mean, that that's saying something. I will say, I went to see Pixels when it came out. I took my kids. I think some of the tonal comedy on it is very much at odds with the family-friendly nature of the rest of the film. That I think Sandler's character in it is really odd. Whatever you think of the film, you might love it, you might not. I, it felt like a bit producty to me. But still, worse films have gone on to make lots more money in cinemas. And so even though the critics came came out and just gave it hammering, um, and, and they really did in some cases give it a hammering, well, Sony had no reason really to suspect it wasn't going to, you know, still deliver. Well, until it looked at its tracking numbers. And the early numbers for the film ahead of its release weren't good. And it didn't help that the week before, Marvel had released the first Ant-Man movie, and the first Ant-Man movie had done far better than had been expected. Low by Marvel standards, but it had opened well. Uh, also, there was competition around. I mean, a Paper Towns, for instance, might look like no threat on paper, but it's from uh, uh, the, the first adaptation of a John Green novel since The Fault in Our Stars had gone nuts at the box office. The boxing drama Southpaw was getting quite a, a wide release as well. And there were holdovers as well. I mean, Minions was doing great guns at the box office after three weeks. Trainwreck um, with uh, Amy Schumer was around and eating up lots of money. Jurassic World was still around. And Pixels opened at the US box office the weekend of July the 24th to the 26th with a disappointing $24 million uh, opening weekend. And there was no way to disguise that this was a disappointment to the point where articles were written in the immediate aftermath about what's Netflix bought here because Adam Sandler's box office days are gone. This should have been an absolute you know, bullseye. How could this possibly miss? Well, it sort of missed like this was the argument. But I mean, Netflix defended its deal with Sandler at the time by saying, well, OK, this might not have gone great guns in America, but Sandler has worldwide appeal. And I mean, oftentimes I talk about films that are perceived as flops that actually turned out not to be. And Pixels just about fits into that category, because by the time its worldwide run was done, it grossed nearly a quarter of a million, a quarter of a billion dollars. Now, against expectations, that's not great. I mean, it did 78 million in the end in the US and Sony would have been hoping for double that. It didn't help that Mission Impossible Rogue Nation came out the following week and helped itself to $55 million, nor the comedy Vacation, that opened to 20, uh, well, to $15 million. Pixels lost nearly half, uh, over half of its business on its second weekend, and it just didn't hold. It, it never really recovered, and within three weeks, it was down to ninth place against not massively tough family market competition. I mean, the Minions film, Holding Over, was the toughest it had, but Pixels was out of the top 10 in under a month. And for Sony, that was a huge disappointment. 
Now, the film inevitably breaks it uh, broke into profit through its various different ways of selling the DVDs, the Blu-rays, the uh, stream, uh, subsequent streaming um, and, and also box office around the world. But this was felt to be the nail in Adam Sandler's box office coffin. And since then, he's not really tested it because he's gone to Netflix and he's not relied on a theatrical release. And, to, and sometimes he's made some superb films over there as well. But for Sony, this was a, a, a real disappointment. I mean, it was followed by another huge disappointment that summer uh, for Fox, the Fantastic Four movie, which I'll come to soon. But it just felt like a movie that had a target on its back that didn't hit the mark and thus was one that for all its years in development was set to just go down with red ink, really, even if it did just in the end break even. For Sandler, he's not really been near a studio since, uh, although he did return to Sony for the Hotel Transylvania uh, project. And for Chris Columbus, I mean, any hope he had of this hitting the four quadrants he was after, I mean, it soon petered out, really. In fact, at the time of this being recorded, he's only directed one movie since, which is the sequel, The Christmas Chronicles 2. And the chances of a Pixels 2 happening in any form, well, they seem pretty light really. Video game movies incidentally have had a resurgence since but I think Pixels was just an idea at a time that could have worked, it should have worked, didn't work. And that brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. Thank you for listening and putting up with my waffle as always. It's hugely appreciated. If I've not totally bored you, I'm on Twitter at Simon Brew. The entire Film Stories project is on Twitter at Film Stories Pod. You can also hear me on the Studio Canal Presents podcast uh, where I talk about classic movies with guests on there. Film Stories you can find online at filmstories.co.uk. You can buy all of our magazines and our, um, our sneakers Blu-ray as well as store.filmstories.co.uk. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash filmstoriesonline, youtube.com slash filmstories. But I think I've gone on too long. I've gone on long enough, haven't I? I'm going to call this episode to an end. Quite a few specials coming up as I'll put on uh, the Patreon feed uh, just as soon as I finish recording this. For now, the most important thing is you all look after yourselves. You all take care. I'll be back soon with another bunch of film stories. You all take care. Bye bye.